Oh, Jesus, I need to get into this now. Okay. What is it that you do to get into the zone? You do, you, what does you say I you do? Smile. You do? I you smile. I smile, the biggest smile. Okay. I put the biggest smile. There's everyone's around you and we're all having the crack. And it's we're amazing. Having the crack. Oh, Jesus Christ, the, the crack is absolutely fierce. And sure. Slow down, no, you oh. don't want to get me too hyped up. We don't want another, <laughs> we don't want another <laughs> version of deleted scenes. <laughs> knock, knock. <clears throat> Stop it. Okay, let's get into this. I know you're trying to help knock, me knock. out here. Well, all right. Oh, who's there? Interrupting Co. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a damn insult, Will. I know that that's directed at me. <laughs> you interrupting Co. <laughs> Interrupt. Let's get into- <laughs> interrupting Kev. I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. (gasps) What did you say? You are a sad, strange little man. Don't call me stupid. Hello and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where each week we pick our favourite scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. This is your co-host Kevin, a writer of one film and three episodes of TV, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host of three films, plus a Christmas special, Will Collins. <laughs> I'm here. How are you getting on? It's going to be one of those episodes where we're both just shattered and... Uh, scatty. Scatty and, and all over the place. Which is going to be the theme of this episode. I am going to scatter uh, through all the different monologues because there are so bloody many of them. Will like it's it, it's going to be sort of the uh, point that I want to hammer home at the end of the episode. But uh, when I was trying to sort of like pass them all, oh my god, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the episodes where I can only make the wrong pick. So. Uh, <laughs> I'm going for least amount of damage I can do to the reputation of the podcast and my own reputation. Because everyone, like, okay, so nearly every film has a monologue. The artist doesn't. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and all the silent era. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have monologues. But a fair chunk of films have monologues. <laughs> Listen, did, have we told people that this is our penultimate episode? That this is episode 15, and as we're coming up to uh, summer holidays and the summer break, uh, we have Mm -hmm. one more episode, which is next week, episode 16, and then we're going to take a break for summer, and as people have heard on episode 13, the post-credits episode, while we're on the break, Mm -hmm. we're going to be releasing audio commentaries of the films where we chose our favourite scenes from in each episode, so... Uh, mm. To give you an idea, it'll be like um, Jaws, uh, Fargo, Princess Bride, Clue, all of them so far. And uh, yeah. we've even recorded a couple, but that's what we're going to be releasing in the next couple of weeks after we go on break. So we're finishing. This is season, This will be the close and finish of season one, but we're not gone. We kind of have like the summer room and the the kind of laid back, chill out room, which is this. It's a totally different. The audio commentaries. Uh, I was quite surprised because I've listened back to the ones we've done. And it really is surprising that you don't have to w- sync it up with the movie. You could sync it up with the movie if you want to. But we go on so so many tangents 
<laughs> irrelevant tangents that you certainly don't need to sync up the film because you would be questioning if we were watching the film <laughs> at times. We're excited to sort of release them. The first one up is going to be Jaws. And here is a clip. I love this moment. This is He's such but, a responsible young boy. So you're saying this kid has been so redubbed. So this kid, yes, his voice is, a, is like Bart Simpson. It's like a, a, an actress. Oh, wow. The pants for little old ladies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good of him. Like he goes, yeah, like he really, like, like I know if I ask my oldest to do that, he would just be like, if you dead, not a chance. <laughs> you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> Every Friday, I think we're releasing them, isn't it? Because they don't feel yes. like Wednesday shows. They feel like something that you listen yeah. to uh, over... Or maybe we'll put them out on a Wednesday. I guess you guys will find out when they're released. When they come out. <laughs> <laughs> when they come out. <laughs> we're a slick operation me, here. You asked me as if I had any clue when is the optimum time to release audio commentaries for <laughs> these movies. Because I haven't a goddamn clue. Well, I'll tell you what, neither do I, but that hasn't stopped us so far. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, we, yeah, we will be finishing up for the summer, but we will be back. The plan is to be back at the start of September. Maybe that's when yeah. we'll come back. Well, so, listen, I suppose we should get stuck into what this episode's about. And last yes. week, when you gave me this topic, there was the obvious sort of contenders sort of immediately flash up. But the one that I thought, ooh, I'd love to talk about that, and it was... Up until, I think, yesterday, it was going to be my pick. And it was going to be another one of these, Kevin pulls a fast one, he's so funny, isn't he? Ha ha. Um, pick. Because we're doing audio commentaries and because I'd love to talk about this film. And right. then I changed my mind. And just before we came on to record, I changed my mind again. My original sort of best monologue was going to be the controversial monologue from Gremlins, written by Chris Columbus. Well, everybody else is opening up their presents. They're opening up their wrists. Where Phoebe Cates explains why she doesn't like Christmas and what happened in her family. No, I have another reason to hate Christmas. Okay, what are you talking about? The worst thing that ever happened to me was on Christmas. Oh, God. It was so horrible. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were, were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. So the police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. That was going to be my pick. It is dark as <laughs> hell, but it is, it is a wonderful scene because... I, I, there's 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 uh, diegetic elements to it that I loved about it. Like when she's delivering her um, her speech, you hear the, the 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 gremlins in the background like smashing and banging, and it sounds it sounds like thunder. It's a, like this perfect soundtrack for this really horrible personal <laughs> experience for this 
girl and her family and um she's brilliant and she delivers it brilliantly and it would have been a great pick kevin would have been a very good pick they fought over keeping that in for the longest time spielberg wanted it out he was adamant that it was too much and it stopped the movie in its tracks and joe dante uh, insisted they keep it but i cannot imagine the film without it it almost defines the film it's sort of it's it's got that black-hearted sort of anarchic spirit where this shouldn't be in a kid's film but uh yeah, I think it's a lovely moment. And of course, they parody it in the sequel, don't they? Where she starts to uh, begin telling a story about President's Day and they go, not again, not going forget there. it. <laughs> Keep moving. <laughs> it's not going to. These things get out. We'll stop we'll them, Billy. Can't give up now. Washington didn't give up. Lincoln didn't give Please. up. Please. What's wrong? Oh, don't mention Lincoln. Something terrible happened to me when you were on Lincoln's birthday. I was six or seven, and I remember I had the day off from school, and Mom had let me go to the park. She made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I was going through that peanut butter and jelly sandwich phase. And this man with his honey, beard um, and a hat looked just like Abe Lincoln. Honey, I really don't think we've got time raincoat. for this now, you know? He, I remember, come oh, on. God. He said, hello, little girl. Honey, come on. <laughs> and that's, I would have been a, that would have been a great pick, Kevin. And I, I love the fact that you've made this last minute a audible call and your strategy because I've done that in the past and and I know now you're on you're you're kind of on shaky ground when you're doing this like going oh god I hope I can, I hope I can make it all I'm play. on I'm on very shaky ground <laughs> but it's but, good uh, and I'll tell you why as well because I have this whole strategy of doing a six degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of structure okay. where each pick is going to segue into the next pick Ooh. and I had it all sort of threaded. And there are many sort of like choose your own adventure paths like in Godown. But because I changed what my last pick is, I've sort of had to do a little bit of nifty footwork there to sort of like track it back. The way I was going to do it was I was going to get you to tell me what your pick is. And then I would go from there to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. And sort of have this process of elimination until we get to what I would consider to be one of the great monologues in okay. movies okay this is very exciting <laughs> we'll see it might be messy as fuck well you never know this is going to be this is this is live folks well uh, heavily edited live uh, episode um but <laughs> yes i i had a i had a think right um but because i've been deep in the in the weeds with so many other projects i i didn't want to overcomplicate things so boasting again but no what one of those projects been editing whatever the last episode i was doing <laughs> so um <laughs> But no, I, I genuinely, I went for um, my tried and tested methods of selecting my scenes, which is, what's a film I really, really love and I haven't spoken about that kind of seems like would have a monologue in it and I didn't do an extensive... Oh, not showgirls again. <laughs> I've had dog food. I used to love doggy chow. <laughs> I used to love doggy chow too. My, my monologue pick isn't coming from showgirls, even though it should. Um, but it is coming from a film that came out in 1989 and it was directed by Peter Weir and it stars Robin Williams and Ethan Hawke. It is at Dead Poets Society. Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Tradition, honour, discipline, excellence, manners up. Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America. An institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity. A school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher. 
except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is... To communicate. No! To woo women. Mr. Keating. Some people like to rock. Which monologue is yeah, it? Yeah, well, that's a film that's kind of dripping with monologue moments. And the scene that I'm picking from that mm. is the monologue or, you know, because they're, they're all pretty much delivered by Robin Williams when he's, you know, teaching his class. It's the first one. It's not the, oh, Captain, my Captain. It's not the Carpe Diem scene. It's the, oh, oh me, oh, I'm sorry. It's, oh, me, oh, life. And it's the first scene when Robin Williams actually takes you know, charge of teaching this class. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Now, see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with them, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. I have a little secret for you. Huddle up. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry beauty, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, Oh me, oh life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, oh me, oh life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? But it is a beautiful scene because it sets up the the awakening that's going to happen for for these boys and ultimately the tragedy that's going to unfold in the course of yeah. the story. And it's not an overly written, it's not a big monologue which, which in actual it's fact... Tom Shulman. Tom Shulman, yeah. It's beautifully written. Beautifully written. It's, uh, it feels, because Peter Weir, I feel, is such a perfectionist, I'm sure Peter Weir would have had a hand, would have had his director's pass as well. I'm not saying it was Peter Weir who came in and did a, whatever. I'm not, yeah, I don't yeah, know the yeah. details on it. But there is such beauty and elegance in the writing. Telling them this poem from Walt Whitman, you know, or me, or uh, sorry, (laughs) or me, or life. And he has this beautiful, there's a beautiful line in it, in the poem itself. But how Robin Williams delivers it is gorgeous. Mm. The last line I love that he delivers is from the poem. And it's, um, it says that the line is, um, that the the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. And he repeats it, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Um, but I particularly love in, in, that, in that monologue how he talks about engineering, uh, engineering and medicine and, and, and law as being noble pursuits, but they're not, you know, writing and they're not poetry. And poetry is the, 
it's about passion, it's about love, it's about romance, it's about grief, it's about all the things that make make up life. And mm. I think it's a very personal pick for me. That's a great one to kick us off. Yeah. It's a personal it's a it's a personal one for me because, you know, I heard that I saw that film at a, at a, that particular age when I was about probably 12, 13 or whatever and uh, you know, we grew up in Catholic in tough Catholic schools and um and yeah, so um, see, having Robin Williams come through the screen and kind of like awaken, you know, me anyway, particularly about the power of, of writing and the power of words. It, um, it's a film I saw at the perfect time and, you know, truly inspirational. And it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And if you haven't seen it, you should. Medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits. Poetry, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. That's beautiful. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Arbitius! Sit down. What the hell is going on here? Seize the day. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. He was the inspiration that made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. Mm. Have you had any teachers in your life like that? Uh, I don't think, I, I don't think I, I don't think so. Yeah. Christian brothers. Oh, well. Um, I've had some <laughs> teachers, um, and <laughs> teachers that, uh, would have, you know, been r- just really nice. And, um, and sometimes you don't need, I think in life, you don't need a, a great monologue from a Robin Williams. You just need someone just to give you the right words of encouragement just at the right time. Definitely. I have a, a vivid memory of, it wasn't in school, it was in college, and I was already, you know, having decided, well, I knew from, as I said in the pre- previous episode, that I wanted to work in film after seeing Jurassic Park, but I didn't know what I was going to do in film. I wasn't even sure what avenues were open to me. It just felt like it was an impossible sort of, like, um, mission. Still feels like that. But uh, I remember uh, in college, I did a film and video production. Uh, we had to write scripts in order to, to fulfill our module. And uh, Catherine Murray at uh, St. John's College, um, one day uh, before Christmas, while we were having our lunch, called me aside. And I remember vividly just getting pulled aside, thinking I'm in trouble because she had given me a bollocking uh, over being on set shooting a short film. And I was the boom operator and I felt the boom being boom operator was boring. And I was starting to like mess around and I was bumping people on the head with the boom and stuff. And I was just being an idiot. And she gave me a bollocking over that and saying, if you don't want to be here, leave. Um, and so I was a bit miffed and thinking, well, I'm going to show her I'm actually, I'm really good. And I'm going to, I'm going to prove to her that she's wrong. And uh, uh, she called me aside and she said, um, have you ever considered writing? And I was like, uh, no. And she said, I really think you should. I think you've got a knack for it. And that's all it was. And um, and I walked back uh, to, you know, she'd complimented the script and stuff that she read, but I, wa- I remember walking back with my sort of like chicken sandwich ready for um, to sort of dive back into the conversations that were still going on. But I was elsewhere. I was like, I floated back to the table and while everyone was still talking, I was just, my mind was just fizzing. And I, it was the first time where I'd gotten a compliment that had meant an awful lot to me. And I just thought like, that was all I needed was just that tiny little bit of validation to say, you're not shit at this. Um, keep going, keep trying. And uh, it's not a big grandiose sort of like uh, um, Robin Williams type soliloquy, 
but it was it was just something that it really stuck to me and it just meant a lot to me and I don't think I would have continued to screenwrite if Catherine Moy hadn't called me aside and said you have a knack for it oh man so yeah that is a great story and I think you're absolutely right because and and it actually has instilled in me when I'm talking to younger people now I always make sure to try and find a kind word to to say to them and particularly if I see someone who's got any sort of inclination in this direction I always just make sure to give them that little bit of um support because it means you know how much it's like a rocket fuel and it it's like a diamond as well it can last for it still lasts with you hearing that story it's still it, in yes. your dna it's so important so it's just one little knock so you've you've got dead poet society which has got ethan hawk right and ethan hawk obviously did the before sunrise trilogy which are him and julie yes. delpy just monologuing continuously over the course of uh, three stages in their lives but the monologue that jumps out at me when I think of uh, that trilogy which are beautiful and there's so much like truth and, and earnestness coming through from those characters is the the one that Julie Delpy gives to um, Ethan Hawke in the first film where she says and, and you know you're talking about lines from the Robin Williams one that stick with you the one that sticks with me is uh, from her monologue where she says that God is in the space between us because they're having this sort of like debate about love and what they think love means and uh, do they want to have children and all that kind of stuff. And I just think that's a beautiful little encapsulation of um, of life really. is It's about that, it's about the gap between you and the other person and how you bridge that gap. Talking seriously here. I mean, I, I always feel this pressure of being a strong and independent icon of womanhood and not making making look like my my whole life is revolving around some guy but loving someone and being loved means so much to me i always make fun of it and stuff but isn't everything we're doing in life a way to be loved a little more mm-hmm. yeah i don't know sometimes i dream about being a good father and a good husband and sometimes it feels really close. Hmm. But then other times, it seems silly, like it would uh, ruin my whole life. <laughs> and it's not just a, a, a fear of commitment or that I'm incapable of caring or loving, because I can. It's just that if I'm totally honest with myself, I think I'd rather die knowing that I was really good at something that I had excelled in some way and then that I'd just been in a nice caring relationship yeah but I had worked for this older man and once he told me that he had spent all of his life thinking about his career and his work and he was 52 and it suddenly struck him that he had never really given anything of himself his life was for no one and nothing He was almost crying saying that. You know, I believe if there's any kind of God, it wouldn't be in any of us. Not you or me. But just this little space in between. If there's any kind of magic in this world, 
It must be in the attempt of understanding someone sharing something. I know, it's almost impossible to succeed, but who cares, really? The answer must be in the attempt. I love that. And it's kind of, there's a, there's a lovely philosophical idea there that um, I heard recently, recently in the last few years, everything recently would mean is in the last half a decade, um, that <laughs> whenever, whenever you have a, a dialogue with someone else, a, a third is made. And it is unique, it is unique to the two voices. And if it's if it's mm. li- if it, if it's it, it will manifest pretty quickly if it is there and it is strong and and um, if it's a group of three it's a weirdest thing if you had took a, if you insert a third person into into let's say this conversation right now all of a sudden that that other entity is completely changed or the dynamic of the conversation is completely changed and what you're saying there with the Julie Delpy that that's a beautiful line says say it it's the you know I believe if there's any kind of God. It wouldn't be in any of us, not you or me, but just this little space in between. Love that. I love the connection, the connection mm. we've made. Yeah. There is our spirituality and it's beautiful. <laughs> this is a very philosophical episode. But it's a common theme that I've noticed when I was like looking through all the different monologues is that they sort of feel more like sermons. The characters sort of get up onto their uh, pulpit and they start revealing truths about themselves and about the world and about their philosophy. And God comes into the conversations again and again and again. And like, you've got Alec Baldwin, who's got some incredible um, monologues. One of them, which I think is gets slightly overlooked, is his monologue in Malice, uh, where he is a surgeon. And he basically says, when people are praying to God... Who are they praying to? The question is, do I have a God complex? Dr. Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you have the vaguest clue as to how talented someone has to be to lead a surgical team... I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England, and I am never, ever sick at sea. So I ask you, when someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that their wife doesn't miscarry or that their daughter doesn't bleed to death, that their mother doesn't suffer acute neural trauma from post-operative shock, who do you think they're praying to? Now, you go ahead and read your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church, and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle, but if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second-guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. Uh, it's so narcissistic, but it's um, it's a fascinating sort of like insight into who that character is and the sort of the um, the God complex of of his character. What's interesting about that is, is I suppose to to be a surgeon, you certainly have to have this kind of compartmentalization where you can detach yourself from the human being and you kind of have to 
embody this role of, you know, you're fighting this demon inside there, whatever thing you're trying to defeat is inside there. So I suppose that's, that's, that, um, well, he's, he's a villain in that and, uh, yeah. villains are a lot of gas bags and, mm. uh, some of the worst monologues are usually like, um, you know, the, uh, the, the sort of the bond reveal of like, here's my grand plan. I'm going to reveal it to you and the hubris that they sort of display in that, uh, they're sort of so pleased with themselves that they sort of like monologue. You sly dog! You got me monologuing! I can't believe it! And also, I love in the Austin Powers film, the second one, who's like, oh, geez, just shoot him! Just shoot him! Just, just this, yeah, whereas it's um, Dr. Evil's <laughs> son uh, is just like, just what? You're just talking, so just give me the gun and I'll just put a bullet in his head right now and we'll just be done with this. I mean, I'll go get a gun. We'll shoot him together. It'll be fun. Bang! It's a trope. It's a trope. (laughs) Very well. Where do I begin? My father was a relentlessly self-improving boulangerie owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with webbed feet. My father would womanize. He would drink. He would make outrageous claims like he invented the question mark. It is a trope. But like, uh, you know, you've also got like that great speech in Pulp Fiction with Samuel L. Jackson, where he's basically quoting Bible verses about Ezekiel and what have you. Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And my son, Wallace, don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. You read the Bible, Brett? Yes. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children and i will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers and you will know my name is the lord when i lay my vengeance upon thee tarantino you know in in terms of like writers who loves a monologue his films are just exploding with them they're all over the place but one of his most i suppose terrifying uh, monologues uh is the opening to inglorious bastards where you're getting to meet christoph waltz's colonel landa who holds yeah. court spinning a yarn making small talk and it is just dread-filled a german soldier conducts a search of a house suspected of hiding jews where does the hawk look He looks in the barn, he looks in the attic, he looks in the cellar, he looks everywhere he would hide. But there's so many places it would never occur to a hawk to hide. However, the reason the Führer's brought me off my Alps in Austria and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me. Because I'm aware what tremendous feats human beings are capable of once they abandon dignity. May I smoke my pipe as well? Uh, please, uh, go and make yourself at home. 
that is the like the power of a monologue where you know that this person can just talk and talk and talk because they're in charge and you know that there's a sting yeah. in the scorpion's tail and you're waiting for it. Mate, when this when this topic came up last week, immediately my brain went to first of all Tarantino and then immediately to this exact this exact monologue in the opening of Inglorious Bastards because it, that's one of the few Tarantino scripts that I actually read before I saw the film. That monologue goes on for pages and pages and pages. He's such a good writer of dialogue. His monologues are actually like yeah. many stories within themselves. He takes you on an adventure on this and and it has turns and there's drama and there's climax. And as you said, there's like explosion usually at the end of them. Um, but yeah, that's a fantastic one. You're sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? Yes. You're sheltering them underneath your floorboards, aren't you? Yes. Point out to me the areas where they're hiding. It's Tarantino again, man. He's just like, he's a gas bag. And you know, when you see him in interviews, he's just rabbiting on. But he can write a fucking monologue. Imagine being the actor who gets this script and can and sees this part and you say, oh, you're reading for... Like, you know, in the case of Christopher Walken, that he shoves the watch, he shoved this watch up his butt and imagines seeing that and just, I could imagine their hearts like, you know, doing a dance I'd, or a skip because yeah. it's fantastic. You just, you just, you just want to perform that. You want to perform it. It's a, it's a, it's a one man show. It's great. Well, listen, if you want to win an Oscar, you need a monologue. It, those are the moments that get actors up onto the, the stage accepting an award. It's the moments where a character just pulls focus, holds court, and spills their guts, and they're the showstoppers. It, and screenwriters win awards for them, but uh, they, they're the things that actors, I think, if they can deliver a monologue, they become instantly into the, the pantheon of the greats. Now, who's next? But getting back to um, me sort of doing my uh, six degrees of separation thing. So I mentioned Malice with Alec Baldwin, with Alec Baldwin, you have to mention one of the all-time greats, which is Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Oh, yeah. Let me have your attention for a moment. Because you're talking about what? You're talking about... Bitching about that sale you shot. Some son of a bitch don't want to buy land. Somebody don't want what you're selling. Some broad you're trying to screw, so forth. Let's talk about something important. Are they all here? All but one. Well, I'm going anyway. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Great. Because the film is an adaptation of the play, obviously, the David Mamet play. And David Mamet won the Pulitzer for the play. And when they were doing the film, Al Pacino was in, he was out, and they were sort of like uh, hedging their bets between whether he would do it or not. And the person that was going to be the standby for Pacino, if he pulled up, was going to be Alec Baldwin. And when everything got reorganised and Pacino was back in, David Mamet said to, to Alec Baldwin, I've written this character called Blake, who wasn't in the play, and uh, he comes in and he basically is the ultimate prick of a boss who comes in and gives all the guys a bollocking. The good news is you're fired. The bad news is you've got all you've got just one week to regain your job, starting with tonight. Starting with tonight's sit. Baldwin said to him, you won the Pulitzer for the stage play and you're rewriting it? Do you really think that it needs this scene? And 
Mamet was like, I think that there's a failing in the in the play, which is that the guys don't have a good enough engine to put, propel them forward to commit these crimes that they're doing. And so they need somebody to come in and basically shake the trees. And that was uh, uh, Baldwin's part. And now when you think about Glengarry, Glen Ross, that's what comes to mind. It's for all the great sort of performances around that film. It's that fucking yeah. monologue that that Baldwin delivers. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, cause you are going out. The leads are weak. The leads are weak. The fucking leads are weak. You're weak. I've been in this business fifteen years. What's your name? Fuck you. That's my name. <laughs> You know why, mister? Everything hinges on that. Um, and, you know, as we're talking about this, you're talking about the um, kind of like how monologues seem to be delivered by villains. And in real life... Sometimes. Yeah, but like oh, sometimes, like for obviously, you know, Robin Williams uh, is not the case. But, but it is so true because in real life, quite often these, you know, the, you have cases where there are serial killers and there are these sociopaths who basically want to, the world to hear what they have to say and want to... Oh, manifesto. Yeah, a manifesto, like uh, the Unabomber's manifesto and, and basically everything, everything Trump's tweets is a manifesto. And, but um, yeah, so kind of villains in real life want to just speak and have their, their voice heard as much as possible. So I, I, I kind of accept it when, when these narcissistic psychopaths all of a sudden start speaking about how great they are and what they want to do and how they're going to make the world better. Because I think that's uh, true to the nature of these types of characters and the real world that we inhabit today. You see, pal, that's who I am and you're nothing. Nice guy? I don't give a shit. Good father? Fuck you. Go home and play with your kids. You want to work here? Close. A villain gives a writer the opportunity to say what they want to say about the world that they can't say in polite society. So it's um, you get free reign to basically just lay out your your social politics on the line. Did you do and maybe rebuke it? Did you do? You didn't kind of like. Did you have like? <clears throat> you didn't have any like villainous monologues and grabbers. You didn't, did you? Because your your villain was the this monster was the no and I. No, and I'll tell you, um, I don't think that, like, a monologue for me is, uh, this is just semantics now, and it's not sort of like, I wouldn't take this as me laying down a hard and fast rule, but I consider a monologue to be almost like a soliloquy in a, a play where a character is just revealing something about themselves, which up until then has been a mystery. But I don't consider, like, um, here's the plan type sort of like long speeches or uh, somebody having a rant, like going off. Like there are some great like monologues in like Christmas Vacation, where Chevy Chase is just like, he has a fucking meltdown and he's like giving it uh, to, to the whole family about what a fucking asshole his boss is. <laughs> hey, if any of you are looking for any last minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there in Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here with a big ribbon on his head. 
And I want to look him straight in the eye, and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no-good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey shit he is! Hallelujah! Holy shit! Where's the Tylenol? But... You know, you look at that, that big block of text, and maybe it is a monologue. But for me, the monologues are um, truth. Some truth is being exposed here. Um, And there were, like, when I was trying to pass it out and say, uh, well, what do I do? Do I go down the the route of, like, because there are so many amazing uh, inspirational speeches that coaches give in movies. There's, um, like... Hoosiers with with Gene Hackman. There's Remember the Titans with Denzel Washington. There's there's an incredible one with Kurt Russell in Miracle. Great moments are born from great opportunity, and that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they might win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. And these are the speeches that they make the hairs on the the back of my neck sort of stand up. They're so rousing. But I don't feel like that those are um, monologues. But uh, I didn't include sports speeches in this because we've got a a topic in the wheel, which is best sports scene. And there's so many of those um, moments I think could be dovetailed into that Mm -hmm. category. But I will say the one uh, speech that I'd love to mention that is in a sports movie but isn't about the sport itself is uh, the Rocky Balboa speech in the Rocky Balboa film. Oh, the, number six? The, what one six, was it? Think, wasn't it? It was the one where he came back where his son was Milo Ventimiglia. Yeah. I probably said that wrong. Yeah, six. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward, how much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.
I'm always gonna love you no matter what. No matter what happens. You're my son, you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't gonna have a life. Don't forget to visit your mother. Yeah. That that Rocky film does it for me. Like I haven't seen it. I actually haven't seen that Rocky film since it came out in the cinema whenever it made, made the noughties. And um I was so shocked that they managed to capture, you know, they captured that essence. And there's other um like there's so many great monologues from like Rocky One where he's like ranting at Mick. He's screaming at Mickey. You can say, You're a bum. Get up, you son of a bitch. Because Mickey loves you. <laughs> and um, he has a, at the very end of uh, the first Rambo film, he has like a, re- again, a, a big monologue where it, he's revealing, as you were just describing there, he's revealing his his trauma, his, uh, his trauma. And uh, this is a, a connection to deleted scenes. That was actually an alternative scene because the original like scene, the original ending for Rambo First Blood is that uh, Rambo kills himself and he doesn't have that monologue and they went, no, oh, no, we want to keep him around. It's such a different film, isn't it? I saw that uh, First Blood years and years later uh, than the other ones. And I watched it and I thought, what the fuck is this? This isn't a Rambo film. This is like a, a 70s gritty uh, soldier dealing with PTSD movie. It felt, yeah. um, it was shocking to me how, how much the tone had changed uh, between the first and the second film. Yeah, just a couple of years. And I really enjoyed that first <laughs> one. I think that I, it was the same. It was, it, for me, it was a delightful surprise that um, it was so understated almost. And, but yeah, that monologue was a deleted, well, the, 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 they obviously decided to go an alternative way and instead of him killing himself, he just delivered this huge monologue. It's over, Jenny. It's over. Nothing is over. Nothing. You just don't turn it off. It wasn't my war. You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world and I see all those maggots at the airport Protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they that protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. It was a bad time for everyone, Rambo. It's all in the past now. For you! For me, civilian life is nothing. In the field, we had a code of honor. You watch my back, I watch yours. Back here, there's nothing. You're the last of an elite group. Don't end it like this. Back there, I can fly a gunship. I can drive a tank. I was in charge of million dollar equipment. Back here, I can't even hold the job. Fucking guys! Ah! So, getting back to um, our six degrees thing, I mentioned Glen Gary, Glen Ross. I, I think I, I dove ahead from there, but Alec Baldwin, who, well, this is where I can go in two different directions, but okay. in Malice, he starred with Nicole Kidman. And Nicole Kidman has a fucking, uh, a chilling sort of a monologue um, in Stoker, directed by Cham Wook Park. You know, I've often wondered why it is we have children in the first place. And the conclusion I've come to is... At some point in our lives, we realize things are... They're screwed up beyond repair. 
So we decide to start again. Wipe the slate clean. Start afresh. And we have children. Little carbon copies we can turn to and say, you will do what I could not. You will succeed where I have failed. Because we want someone to get it right this time. But not me. Personally speaking, I can't wait to watch life tear you apart. And it's so sort of chilling the way that Nicole Kidman delivers it, who I think is one of the great actresses for choosing material. Like, whether the films are great or not, she always, like... Her her taste is on point. I know. Thank you so much. <laughs> but um, that's a beautiful film, though. Um, beautiful in 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 a sort of a gothic horror type way, Stoker. But uh, also in Stoker, you have Jackie Weaver, and Jackie Weaver oh. has she pops up again and again though as a character actress but the first time that I became known to her and I think everyone else sort of got an introduction to her was in Animal Kingdom where she's playing that terrifying matriarch of a a family of of criminals that are abusing this kid and um, indoctrinating him into a life of ruthless criminality and uh, she gives this performance in the police station suggesting in so many words that it would be better for everybody, the police included, that her grandson, who is in protective custody with Guy Pierce, is killed. Look, I know you got a problem, Janine. But I don't see how this mess you boys are in's got anything to do with me. So if you've called me in here to see if there's some strings I can pull in your way, of course. Is that what this is about? Hey Randall, before you go on. This boy who's currently being looked after. Tell me if you agree with this. This boy who's being looked after. He knows who you are. And you know how these things go. They're going to ask him all sorts of questions about everything he's ever seen or done. Everyone he's ever met. The whole schmozzle. And you've done some bad things, sweetie. Haven't you? I want this part to be clear. This is not about you doing me a favour or me blackmailing you, anything like that. It's just a bad situation for everyone. Ezra's got the address. It shouldn't be too hard to set up a raid on the house. There'd be reasonable grounds, what with all the strange activity, the comings and goings day and night. One of the neighbours might have seen a gun or something. This is your area of expertise. I'm not trying to tell you how to suck eggs. What do you think? I really don't see how anything can be done, Janine. Randall. I feel sick about this. I'm not happy at all. Not one little bit. But we do what we have to do. We do what we must. Just because we don't want to do something doesn't mean it can't be done. The way that she has this sort of like sing-songy delivery and this sort of intense smile 
she's fucking terrifying. And she was Oscar nominated for, for that film, for that performance. That was uh, written and directed by um, the Australian uh, writer-director, David Mich- Michaud. Michaud? I, I, can't pronounce, I can't pronounce his surname. Michaud, yeah. And... He mm. is someone that has been that film. Uh, that you're talking about, Animal Kingdom came out in 2010, and I watched it just you know casually because I heard it recommended somewhere. But I did not, I did not expect what I got, which was this engrossing, intense family crime drama that was utterly gripping. I think it's one of the best films of the 21st century. Wow, uh, you know, it was regarded as a great. Um, independent crime film mm-hmm. but I would put that in the same pantheon as like Goodfellas and The Godfather and and it's just it's a perfect film it's so meticulously put together and so um, transportive in that it feels real all the moments feel real even though they're heightened and it's just meticulously put together it's a it's a terrific film it's one of those breakout films uh, that uh, elevates, like really, if you get a juicy role in a film, it's like, the, it's like a perfect storm happens. Mm. You have this independent Australian crime drama, but, but, which is incredibly well-written, incredibly well-directed. But in it, the, that cast, it's got Ben Middleton as a psycho son. Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce, But Jackie Weaver is right there in the epicenter. And just, she's the... The, the, the queen of this family and her career as a consequence just exploded like she was yeah she was in Aronofsky's. she was nominated again for Silver Linings Playbook there you go yeah so she's she's been up twice but um she should have won that year I don't know who did win but I do know that that was also the year that the King's Speech uh, won Best Picture okay. and that is a film that's all about uh, overcoming a monologue it's just it's the whole film is built around it can um, Colin Firth deliver the, the speech with his stutter uh, so you know monologues <laughs> but she is fantastic and great pick Kevin another great yeah one. so we mentioned we mentioned um, we mentioned well we mentioned Rocky and Rocky being known for its training uh, uh, montages and we mentioned Denzel Washington sort of giving these great speeches as, as sort of like well, he's always sort of playing coaches in movies. Oh, I see. He always feels like he's playing a basketball coach, the sort of know-it-all characters who right. are just in there to sort of like lay down the law with this folksy yeah. charm. And if you don't get it, then son, you're out of here. Um, but uh, one of the films where he was nominated for an Oscar, where he was playing a villain, which is rare in his career, is Training Day. Great. Oh, you motherfuckers. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm putting cases on all you bitches. Huh? You think you can do this shit? Jay! You think you can do this to me? You motherfuckers will be playing basketball in Pelican Bay when I get finished with you. Shoe program, nigga. 23-hour lockdown. I'm the man up in this piece. You'll never see the light of day. Who the fuck you think you fucking with? I'm the police. I run shit here. You just live here. Yeah, that's right. You better walk away. Go on, walk away, because I'm going to burn this motherfucker down. King Kong ain't got shit on me. So my segue here is... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm improvising, but my segue is like... 
Rocky with its training montages to training day. So you'll have to give me this one. <laughs> you've slightly gone, slightly skewed. You're shoehorning it in, Kevin, but I'll, 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 give, I'll give you a break. Ethan Hawke, wait, wait. Ethan Hawke was in, uh, was in um, uh, Dead Poets, and he's his co-star yeah. on this. <laughs> Skipping about 15 uh, moves to the chessboard here. But no, that's a great... Uh, monologue by Denzel Washington's character at the end where he's basically terrified he knows that he's about to be brought down by all these guys that he has been lording it over and it's sort of this bravado of a guy that is going out all guns blazing that's right that's right shit I don't fuck I'm winning anyway I'm winning I'm winning any motherfucking way I can't lose Shit, you can shoot me, but you can't kill me. And again, a great monologue that got him nominated. And a film written by David Ayer, who we know from writer Mm. and director of like Suicide Squad and uh, End of Watch. (laughs) But um, actually, I'm not a huge fan of his films, as a matter of fact. But I really liked, he did Fury, which is one actually, um, the one with Brad Pitt. Yeah, the Tank Tank movie. Yeah, I'd like to watch that one again. Um, so Denzel mm-hmm. did Training Day also directed Fences which is an August Wilson play yes. and that is two powerhouses going head to head with this great dialogue with him and Viola Davis and if you want a, a, a monologue to be knocked out of the park Viola Davis is one of those actors like Francis McDormand and Marilyn Brando who will just deliver and she has uh a monologue in Fences, which she she learns that Denzel has been having an affair and her life, her marriage, is not as complete as she wanted it to be. And her whole life, uh, she felt that she had half of, it, of everything. And no, he has split the family in two. And um, she goes for it, where she's saying, you know, he's trying to say that for 18 years, he has struggled to be a good man and he's gotten nowhere and she's like for 18 years I've been standing right beside you so what you've suffered I've suffered uh, but it's it's an amazing performance and she just is an incredible actress it's not easy for me to admit that I've been standing in the same place for 18 years well, I've been standing with you I've been right here with you Troy I've had a life too I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. Don't you think I ever wanted other things? Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? Don't you think I ever crossed my mind to want to know other men that I wanted to lay up somewhere and forget about my responsibilities? That I wanted someone to make me laugh so I could feel good? You're not the only one who's got wants and needs, but I held on to your toy. I took all my feelings, my wants and needs and dreams, and I buried them inside you. I planted a seed and watched and prayed over. I planted myself inside you and waited to bloom. It didn't take me no 18 years to realize the soil was hard and rocky and it wasn't never going to bloom. But I held on to you, Troy. I held you tighter. You was my husband. I owed you everything I had, every part of me I could find to give you. And upstairs in that bedroom with the darkness falling in on me, I gave everything I had to try and erase the doubt that you wasn't the finest man in the world. And wherever you was going, I was going to be there with you because you was my husband. 
Because that's the only way I was going to survive is your wife. And that's based... It's based on a stage play, isn't it? It August is, Wilson, yeah. I think. August Wilson. So it's a direct adaptation from a stage play. So like its its roots are in a dialogue-based production. Mm. And um, she's, you're absolutely right. She is phenomenal. She is uh, incredible in everything I've seen her in anyway. I think she's an incredible actress. Well, but also well, when you give her like the raw material that that is, you know, that that is of a standard that... Um, that, that that is there in, in Vince's, then, you know, it's just fantastic. I don't know whether this counts as a monologue, but I do think it's one of the most incredible um, scenes uh, uh, of her career and really, you know, even of Streep's career. And it's from Doubt, the John Patrick Shanley oh. film. I want you all to be alert. I am concerned about matters in St. Nicholas School. Academically? I was not inviting a guessing game, Sister Raymond. What's this, Mr. Conroy? I don't know, sister. They're all uniformly terrified of you. That's how it works. Boy! Come up here. The dragon is hungry. It's a new time, sister. The church needs to change. The point being? We should be friendlier. Father Flynn? He called Donald Miller to the rectory. So, it's happened. We are going to have to stop him. Ourselves. What happened in the rectory? Happened? Hmm. Nothing happened. I had a talk with a boy. What about? Private matter. He's 12 years old. What could be private? You have the slightest proof of anything. But I have my certainty. I can fight you. You will lose. Where Viola Davis turns up, and the whole film it basically boils down to Meryl Streep, who's the mother superior um, of this school, believes, suspects, that Philip Seymour Hoffman is um, interfering with the boys. And one of them is... Uh, Viola Davis's son and it's a period film I think it's set in the 60s 64 I think 64 there you go and uh, she calls the mother in and she wants to basically explain to her that the priest that's teaching at the school has been interfering with her son and um, and Viola Davis basically shocks Meryl Streep dropping some truths on uh, Meryl Streep and on us I think as an audience and it's heartbreaking to watch a mother that's caught between a rock and a hard place. What kind of mother are you? Excuse me, but you don't know enough about life to say a thing like I this, sister. I know enough. You know the rules, maybe, but that don't cover it. I know what I won't accept. You accept what you got to accept and you work with it. This man is in my school. Well, he's got to be somewhere. Maybe he he's doing some good, too. After the boys. Well, maybe some of them boys want to get caught. That's why his father beat him. What are you telling me? I'm talking about the boy's nature now. Not anything he's done. You can't hold a child responsible for what God gave him to be. 
I'm only interested in actions, Mrs. Miller. But then there's the boy's nature. Leave that out of it. Forget it, then. You don't want to force people to say things. My boy came to your school because they were going to kill him in a public school. His father don't like him. You come to your school, kids don't like him. One man is good to him, this priest. Then does a man have his reasons? Yes. Everybody does. You have your reasons, but... Do I ask the man why he's good to my son? No. I don't care why. My son needs some man to care about him and to see him through the way he wants to go. And thank God this educated man with some kindness in him wants to do just that. This will not do. It's just till June. I'll throw your son out of this school. Why would you do that if it didn't start with him? Because I will stop this. You'd hurt my son to get your way. It won't end with your son. Throw the priest out then. I am trying to do just that. Then what do you want from me? Nothing. As it turns out. Please leave my son out of this. My husband will kill that child over a thing like this. I remember that scene, and as you just said, you're completely and utterly thrown off when she says what she says. Because you're expecting one reaction. You're expecting, like, what? Again, one of those films that's well worth watching. You know, it's a cracker of a film. Doubt can be a bond as powerful as certainty. It might not be as good as John Patrick Shanley's uh, World Mountain Time. Not much is, Kevin. Tell me, standing on this holy land of Ireland, why shouldn't you marry me? I see things. I'm delusional. I know I'm a swan. (laughs) (laughs) Not much is. But that is my awkward segue to get from that to Ireland. (laughs) And when I was sort of like looking at monologues from Ireland, uh, there's a lot to pick from, but the one that jumped out immediately uh, for me was Michael Fassbender's monologue in Hunger. I went there when I was 12. Big cross-country race for the boys. And we're all in the back of a minibus headed towards Derry one morning. I mean, this is big time. Now, this is like international athletics for us because we're racing against boys in the south and we have this thing to do Belfast Pride. Two of the boys are prods, the rest of us are Catholics. It's a cross-community event. I suppose the good people in the south think this is great stuff and let's get this wee team over from Belfast and all that patronising shite. Donegal has to be the most beautiful place in Ireland, I reckon. And it's harrowing. 
and it's disturbing, but it's a it's a great another great performance and a and a great monologue. Anyway, what a place and it's up and with about two hundred boys in there getting into their gear and limbering up. Our team goes off for a wee jog, stretch out the legs, and they dip down into a wee valley where there's a stream and woods running through it. And we come across these young fellows from Cork. There's uh, some banter about our accents, but they could barely talk. We couldn't understand what they were saying. So we're down by the river, down the stream. There's half a foot of water in there. Little silver fish, but none substantial. Till one of their boys calls us further down. Lying in the water is a wee foal. Four or five days old. He's all skin and bone, a grey colour. And he's got flecks of blood in his coat because he's cut himself up really badly on the sharp rocks. We're just standing over him and you can see his back leg snapped. And he's breathing. He's alive, but just about. So this big conversation gets started up between the boys who suddenly reckon themselves the leaders. They're deliberating as what we should do. Someone says, drop a rock in his head. But I'm looking in their faces and I can see they're either scared stiff or clueless. It's all bravado. And this fool on the ground, in real pain. All this chit-chat going on, going nowhere. So it's clear to me in an instant, and I'm down on my knees, and I take the fool's head in my hands and I put him underwater. He's thrashing around a bit to start, so I press down harder until he's drowned. Priest arrives, though. He's grabbing me by the hair, dragging me through the woods, promising me a proper hiding. But I knew I did the right thing by that wee fool. And I could take the punishment for all our boys. I had the respect of them other boys now, and I knew that. Uh, beautifully written screenplay. Two it was Steve McQueen and Enda Walsh, the writers yeah. who wrote that. Um, and is that, that's, um, is that in that incredibly long take with uh, Liam Cunningham? Yeah. Is that at the same? In that, oh, yeah, I know the one. And I think to pull that off, they actually moved in together, as a matter of fact. They, um, to get that familiarity? To get that familiarity. And they rehearsed it maybe 20 times a day or something like that. So when they came to that scene, it was just like a muscle memory. It was like they were playing tennis against each other. Um, so, yeah, they actually moved in together for quite a while, like maybe for the entire production, and um, rehearsed that scene over and over and over again um, because they knew it was the entire pivotal moment of that film uh, you know, just require that scene to be perfect. And um, mm. it is, it's incredible. It's so, mm. you know, intense and it's... Um, and again, it's yeah. its another one where it just cemented Fassbender's uh, status as a great actor. Right. So I haven't mentioned as many writers here as I should have, but one writer we mentioned on the very first episode and it was um, William Goldman's brother. He, sorry, he was his brother was also an Oscar winning screenwriter. Yep. And the winner is yeah. James Goldman for The Lion in Winter. Which was shot in Ireland. Which wow. is a segue from Hunger to uh, Catherine Hepburn's uh, monologue in that. Of course he has a knife. He always has a knife. We all have knives. It's eleven eighty three and we're barbarians. How clear we make it. Oh, my piglets, we are the origins of war. Not history's forces, nor the times, nor justice, nor the lack of it, nor causes, nor religions, nor ideas, nor kinds of government, nor any other thing. We are the killers. We breed wars. 
We carry it like syphilis inside. Dead bodies rot in field and stream because the living ones are rotten. For the love of God, can't we love one another just a little? That's how peace begins. We have so much to love each other for. We have such possibilities. And that's a brilliant sort of like tortured cry from a, a sort of a Lady Macbeth type. And I thought that was a nice little callback. And uh, then, man, I think it's a great callback to one of the greatest pieces of film trivia that this entire season one of podcasts has delivered. <laughs> that they were which brothers, is, which is the very first one. That, yeah, and they both won Academy Awards like uh, back to back concurrently. You know, sixty uh, is would it be sixty eight and then sixty nine? Am I right? I think it was sixty nine and seventy. Okay, okay, and I don't think. I've seen this fully. You put me here. You made me do mad things. You bled me. Shoulder it yourself. It's got a lovely ending where Catherine Hepburn, who plays Peter O'Toole's wife, Eleanor, uh, Peter O'Toole is King Henry II, her plans to have uh, one of their sons become king after their dad backfires. And she is basically, she's lost everything. Her sons are to be sentenced to death and Peter O'Toole can't bring himself to do that so he exiles his sons um, and he sends his wife off to prison and that's how the the movie ends and you'd think that that would be very bleak and very um, tragic but Eleanor and, and King Henry II they love each other and despite the pressures of um, royalship at that level I want to die no, you don't. I want to die. I'll hold you. There's still love between them. So even though Peter O'Toole is having the marriage annulled and he's sending his wife off to prison, um, it ends with her laughing in the face of adversity and uh, vowing to come back at him again and him welcoming that. Uh, so there's a reason why James Goldman won the Academy Award. It's such a... This, the script is just filled with these lovely character moments and I could pepper this whole podcast with clips from it. But um, the ending itself is lovely. I'm a match for anything. Not you. I should have been a great fool not to love you. Let me out for Easter. Come the resurrection. You can strike me down again. Perhaps next time I'll do it. And perhaps you won't. You know, I hope we never die. So do I. Do you think there's any chance of it? <laughs> but that film also starred 
Anthony Hopkins as Catherine Hepburn's um, second son in it. But it was my impression that you wanted Henry's throne for me. We can't win, Richard. We've lost it this time. And it was also his second film. Wow. And that gives me... <laughs> that gives me a segue into Silence of the Lambs. Oh. <laughs> You've got some great monologues in Silence of the Lambs. But we've talked about Silence of the Lambs uh, already, I think, on this podcast. So I'm going to leapfrog mm-hmm. from that to my pick. Oh. So this is giving me my pick. Right. Which is that Anthony Hopkins also starred in Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula, the um, Mm -hmm. Francis Ford Coppola film. For heaven's sake, who in all of England, by the very furthest stretch of the imagination, could possibly be a vampire? Count Dracula. Well, maybe him. But one of the other uh, stars of that film was Keanu Reeves. And Keanu Reeves starred in The Matrix Reloaded. And when I think about the best monologue, I am going with The Architect's Monologue. From the oh, Matrix Reloaded. Wow. Okay. Okay. Hello, Neil. I am the architect. Ergo, though I created the Matrix. After which you will be required to select from the Matrix. Your life is You have many I was genuinely going, okay, <laughs> okay, right, trying to feign enthusiasm oh, for the fact that I went, God. hang on a second. <laughs> so, oh, you trickster. No, uh, obviously, The Science of the Lambs mm-hmm. also starred Ted Levine. Ted Levine baby in basket. was in Heat, uh, where if there was a monologue in Heat, I would have chosen that. But in Heat, you had Al Pacino and De Niro, who were also in The Godfather Part 2. That gives me a jumping off point from that to Marlon Brando, which uh, gives me Apocalypse Now, which would have been my pick. Kurtz's monologue at the end. Horror has a face. And you must make a friend of horror. Horror and moral terror are your friends. If they are not, then they are enemies to be feared. They are truly enemies. Apocalypse Now would have been my pick right until we did the recording of this. And I changed my mind and I'm scrambling in order to to sort of link the chain through. And the way I've got it is that Harrison Ford appears one of his earliest films yeah. just after Star Wars uh, Nervous as Hell his character's name was Lucas there you go he come he come literally off of Star Wars onto mm-hmm. it uh, but not long after that he did Blade Runner oh. and one of the shortest monologues uh, of all that I've mentioned so far is the one that I'm going with and it's the monologue that Rutger Hauer delivers at the end the Tears and Rain monologue absolutely lovely I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. (laughs) Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost 
in time. Like tears in rain. Time to die. That was it's supposed to be six degrees of Kevin Bacon, not 60 degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> what is well, listen, I was going to say, and this was going to be like one of my sort of like little, okay, let's liven this up and have fun with it, that um, there are many ways I could have taken this path. Yeah. I'll tell you the alternative path I could have taken, which would have been Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society. Seize the day. He won his Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. Oscar goes to Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting. Same year that Jack Nicholson won for As Good As It Gets. You make me want to be a better man. When you've got Nicholson, that gives me A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth! Uh, which also starred Christopher Guest, who has that great monologue in Waiting for Goffman. And I'll tell you why I can't put up with you people, because you're bastard people. Yeah. Who's married to Jamie Lee Curtis, who has that amazing monologue in A Fish <laughs> Called Wanda. I've known sheep that could outwit you. I've worn dresses with higher IQs. <laughs> Which gives us Kevin Klein, who won the Oscar that year. Kevin Klein and a fish called Wonder. Uh, which was the same year that Mississippi Burning won, where Francis McDormand gives that great speech about hate being taught. Hatred doesn't sound like a poem with. It gets taught. And that was the same year that Dangerous Liaisons won for Best Script, where Glenn Close has that amazing monologue about win or die. I became a virtuoso of deceit. And Glenn Close starred with Michael Douglas in Fatal Attraction. I'm not going to be ignored. Michael Douglas gave us Greed is Good in Wall Street. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Which was directed by Oliver Stone, who did Natural Born Killers. It's just murder, man. All God's creatures do. Which was written by Tarantino, who gave us Jackie Brown, which starred De Niro. I mean, don't say one fucking word, okay? Okay, Which De Niro gives us Madame Brando. Which, <laughs> and it takes me right back again to Blade Runner. I mean. Surprised you didn't come here sooner. <laughs> I bet it just would have had the same grip or something. You've just got into the grips and you would have just made a connection in one, in one link. <laughs> Desperate anything yeah. to sort of like give this episode some sort of like structure. Oh, I love it. <laughs> but I'll tell you, right, the reason that I did that and I went through this whole thing about all these different connections is that I think that monologues are the movies. And in a film, when a character stops and tells you a story, that's what pulls us in and we're getting some truth about the world or about ourselves and using them to make sense of the world and to sort of absorb sort of the hard truths of life because uh, oftentimes life just does not make sense. And so stories are what bind us and what bring us um, a sense of meaning. And uh, when I was just doing this, um, whole sort of episode and sort of structuring it. I thought it's all about forming those connections, uh, us as an audience with a character, and then, you know, realising that there are monologues in almost every film and all of them mean and matter. And, and, and it just, it made sense to me. And I'll tell you one other thing, uh, uh, sort of as I'm rambling here, is yeah. I just recently watched a film uh, that I hadn't seen that's coming out on the Criterion Collection. Uh, and it's called Afterlife, and it's a 1998 film by Hirokazu Kurita. And it's a beautiful film, and it's basically a film that's entirely made up of monologues. And uh, to give you a sense of, of the, the story, because it's, it's, it's one of those films that I think I'll always remember having no seen it. And I think that you have to seek it out, because it, it, will, it will just stick with you. 
but it's set at sort of like a, a Japanese boarding house, uh, a very bureaucratic, very sort of like monastic um, setting. And all these characters turn up and we learn that these people have recently died and they're being processed for the afterlife. And in order to, to move through to the afterlife, it's going to be a bespoke sort of heaven. And heaven is going to be built upon the character's favourite moment, uh, the favourite memory of their life. They can take one memory with them. And so you have these um, staff interviewing the people who have recently died um, and trying to glean from them what is the one memory of your life that you were most happiest. And uh, it's just a series of, of conversations with characters who are like, elderly spinsters who never married, teenagers who were apathetic, people who had anguished lives that didn't really have any love in it, um, people that were filled with love and can't decide what moments to pick, characters who um, feel embarrassed that their favourite moment was going to Disneyland. But it's these beautiful little monologues with characters trying to sum up life. If anything you take from this episode, that movie is the one to take and to go watch it. What if there is an afterlife? What if, before you get to heaven, you go to a special place? A place where you choose one memory to take with you forever. What is the one memory you would choose? Would it be love's awakening? Or a tender farewell? Would it be the promise of youth? or the reflection of age? Would it be a moment of beauty? I'm going to watch that episode afterlife. And, you know, it beautifully, actually, in a weird way, ties back in to my pick. You know, Robin Williams' character in Dead Poets Society was trying to express to his boys in the monologue, yeah, you're, you're saying that we get locked in as a part of our DNA. If we hear a story, we, we are seeking stories. That's what I feel about us as human beings. We're seeking stories. And I think that we're all yeah. natural storytellers. Like we even think of our lives in sort of three act structures, mm-hmm. beginning, middle and end. Um, it's just something about us. But I haven't talked much about Blade Runner and yeah. there's, there's a lot that I could say like about that it. That Blade Runner scene is absolutely fantastic. And of course, it was uh, written by, uh, it was adapted from Philip K. Dick's book, but the screenplay was written by Hampton Francher and David Peoples. And I remember... I definitely remember knowing from behind the scenes documentaries that they kind of passed the script back and forth between each other. But that that speech itself, did Rooker Hauer write that speech? You know, or that's kind of like been a debate. Uh, the way that that speech is sort of contextualised is the tears and rain um, phrase. That was what Rooker Hauer brought to it. But the original speech um, was pretty much what you, you hear on screen. It was just that uh, in the script it was, I've seen things, things you wouldn't believe, attack ships, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I rode on the back of decks of a blinker and watched sea beams glitter in the dark near Tannhauser Gate. All those moments, they'll be gone. And you can see that that is, that, well, that's pretty much the information, but it doesn't have the poetry that yeah. Rukaho brought to it, which it's is poetry. him saying, but, all those moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain, time to die. That's exactly it, Kevin. It's got poetry. These monologues have to be poetic. So yeah, some monologues are, they're so vital to what cinema is all about, really, that even Charlie Chaplin, who was like the, an icon of silent cinema, that when he had the technology to 
uh, include sound. He gave us one of the greatest speeches of all time uh, in The Great Dictator, where he is basically imploring the people who can hear him. And I've talked about a lot of villain speeches in this, and I've sort of included clips that are, that are you know, characters being monstrous and sort of celebrating the, the darkness within them. But that particular speech by Charlie Chaplin at the end of The Great Dictator um, is timeless. And uh, I felt that it was something that was worth mentioning as we're um, wrapping up this episode. So this hasn't been the funniest of episodes, but I can tell you this, this episode has made me want to write something. Uh, a nice, big, long speech. And for all those writers out there, some of them listen to this podcast, but we're always told to cut your dialogue down, to keep it short, to, you know, make it concise and get to the point that it's also worth taking a swing and writing those big, hearty speeches uh, where you pour what you think uh, the character thinks, um, what you think by proxy about the world um, into a character because those are the things which uh, get us into the cinema and that we remember from the movies. And more than anything else, it feels like those are the magical moments that we cling to and use in our own life. A cool shot is a cool shot, but some wisdom that we can glean from a monologue is something that we can take with us for the rest of our days. Amen, Kevin. Amen. Fucking hell, I feel like I've just given the monologue. That was fucking it, man. That was fucking it. I just said I don't have to contribute anything else to that. That is the business. So, for the last time this season, it's time to spin the wheel. Oh, God. No, yes. Yes. Wonderful. I'm so delighted. I cannot wait. Okay, here we go. Do you know what it is? Let me just read your mind. Well, no, you don't know what it is because I need to tell you. Um... (laughs) It's um, it's best single take scene, best oneer. Okay, okay. So, what? Okay, okay. Immediate when you say oneer, immediately in my brain I kind of go, oh, Steven Spielberg. But we've done so much Steven Spielberg at this stage. I was thinking of of um, 1917. The the isn't that whole film done in one take? Yeah, it is. Or it's well, not, no, it? no, it's not done in one take. It, there's like, you know, there's hidden cuts in there, but yeah, they did do like big, long, single takes for you know, different scenes and stuff like that. Um, that's impressive. That's something that probably should be in consideration. Okay, single takes. Right. So we've gone something that's very vulnerable to know mm-hmm. something quite visual. It's, it's mm. all about the camera work. Getting everything, the blocking, yeah. getting everything in one. So, all right, last episode of the season. Best one Yeah, Here we go. Where can people find you, Will? People can find me on Twitter, under Willem's Film. I'm not going to spell it this time. You know it by this stage. Willem's Film. Kevin, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me also on Twitter, under my name. But listen, I'm going to play us out with a clip. Well, the full clip from The Great Dictator. Nice, well done. See you next week, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. 
We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie, they do not fulfill that promise, they never will. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! The Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. If you have any notes, comments, scene suggestions, or just want to get in touch with us, email us at bestbitspodcast at gmail.com. Like, fuck, that's episode 15 done. What about network, Kevin? Do you, do you want to bring that up at some stage? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you fuck up, Kevin? Fuck it. <laughs> I am mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore, Will. I'm just not. <laughs> oh, Kevin. And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show. The full episode, plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits with Will and Kevin. No, the best bits with Kevin and Will and the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. <laughs> you can't okay. throw what? <laughs> oh my god. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits with Kevin and Will and. Talking 
Deviant Lit. Okay, right. I'm gonna find the fucking thing. Because it's gonna be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it. That'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So yeah. I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened. <laughs> I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the Podbot one. Like nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet. And then, of yeah. course, I was delighted with that. And people hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy on the ears in, a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice. So there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogus and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. I'm a psycho yeah, That's exactly what you do. So. Don't forget, now you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. Not, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God, I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kev Van Willem about the telly and the latest film. Come and the dynamic duo. Don't forget, no yours, three euro. Come off the stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could happen. How do you operate? I, 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 I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet. And does, I do, that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of, of a toilet. Yeah, so I'm saying. You just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man, I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about. Should I start the timer? Have we just started? Start the timer because I'm raring to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster oh, very recently. It went, "There's a Madam Web film," and I'm, "What is this?" So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of the Spider Man movies. But I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago and I thought it was just tedious. It's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvel's, well, yeah. she's in it, Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel 2. It was just sort of like, it was another one of those films that felt like Ant-Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and Mm -hmm. airless. And, you know, you just have sound stage after sound stage. And I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. I feel like Uh, there's nothing organic happening in these. From the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels it's artificial wafer thin just wafery artificially no sustenance no satisfaction 
you no protein in it whatsoever. You feel like, oh, yeah. wow, I just I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry. It feels like eating plastic. Okay. On the whole, it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them. Yet, I found The Flash really fun because it, was, it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went into Madam Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I have to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Caddy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Caddy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. 